This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Double and Scott Phillips. <laughs> Covering game by game odds and futures markets. Thomas, Shake, Crossover, Step Back! It's Outside Shots, presented by the Lions. This is Outside Shots, the College Hoops podcast for betting underdogs on a nightly basis where we discuss why Hunter Dickinson should never give out his own betting predictions and, of course, breaking down everything else you need to know on the College Basketball Odds Board presented by TheLines.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and leave us a five-star review and you'll have a chance to win an Amazon gift card if you're watching on YouTube, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, and ring the bell to get notifications for whenever a new episode is up. And the lines.com is giving a $25 Amazon gift card away as well every day in our daily college hoops pick'em contest. For more details, head over to play.thelines.com. Myself, Eli Herskovich on Twitter at Eli Herskovich, Scott Phillips. My co-host forever and always at Phillips Hoops on Twitter. Scott, how are we doing on this lovely Monday afternoon? Man, I am pumped, Eli. It's feast week. <laughs> We've got the World Cup starting with Team USA kicking off today. There's football on Thanksgiving. A lot of just great sports happening throughout just the weekday just to get us through things. And, you know, we'll talk about a lot of these tournaments that we've been harping on over these last couple episodes as we dig into more detail. But, yeah, we're just we're going to learn a lot about the national college basketball landscape after this week of tournaments. We're going to see maybe some of these contenders and pretenders and who separates themselves. And, you know, for me, I'm just anxious to get it all started. We're going to dive into, just to give you guys a quick little rundown of how we're going to do things on the podcast today. Again, we're recording before Maui technically tips, but you might be the Maui Invitational, that is, but you might be listening later in the afternoon or Monday night, early Tuesday morning. So not going to do a ton of early round matchups in that holiday tournament in particular, but we're going to do quick reactions to the weekend, dive into the Thanksgiving feast week tournament starting with Maui, then battle for Atlantis, Phil Knight Invitational, and Phil Knight Legacy Tournament, the first half and second half of the PK-85. I, I kind of get it, Scott, but I just, the Invitational, the Legacy, it just it's a little much for me when we're trying to get everything prepared for the podcast, and I'm trying to figure out how to differentiate the two tournaments. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, factors at play trying to get those two apart in your head, but we'll do the best we can. Like you said, we're going to go over the four major tournaments and a lot of things that we really gleaned from last week's games as well. Some really fun results already uh, at play here. And let's start off with Gonzaga knocking off Kentucky by double digits. They win that game. 88-72 to 72 on Sunday night. Gonzaga was a four, four-and-a-half point favorite, closed at four-and-a-half at most shops, opening minus three. And you think about what happened on Wednesday night when the Bulldogs, the Zags, got blitzed by Texas, a great spot to back the Longhorns. We talked about that, Scott, last week on the Outside Shots podcast, but a great bounce-back spot then to counter with the Zags against the Kentucky Wildcats, who have... A lot of problems at both ends of the floor that we'll dive into here in a second. But Drew Timmy watching, especially in that first half, and 
at times in the second half, really dominated in the trailer position, diving to the basket. And John Calipari never adjusted, never really adjusted at the other end of the floor. Granted, Kentucky really just needed to hit threes. They went 0 of 10 from deep in the first half, which made that game trailing by double figures at the break and overall. But Gonzaga, 44 points in the paint, 1.22 points per possession. And Kentucky's half-court offense remains a big issue. We saw it against Michigan State, too. When they hit shots, it's a little different, but C.J. Frederick didn't really look in form throughout much of that game yesterday. Cason Wallace, though, has a combined, in terms of their top two matchups in their two of their last three games against Michigan State and Gonzaga, 12 steals between both of those games. So, And he's starting to hit some perimeter shots as well. He's not going to be Ty Ty Washington to me, but a guy, if, if he can space the floor at somewhat of a consistent rate, Washington was a 35% three-point shooter last year, be an elite defender to spark that transition offense, which Kentucky needs considering you don't get floor spacing for the most part from Severe Wheeler and Shibway inconsistent in the mid-range, not the best in terms of efficiency in the low post either. So I came away impressed with Gonzaga off the bounce back and still a lot of question marks with Kentucky. Yeah, for me, uh, we kind of know who Gonzaga is going to be. We've harped on some of their backcourt issues. The turnover problems loom large. Nolan Hickman still doesn't look like he's all that comfortable asserting himself within that Gonzaga offense so far. That being said, they still have more than capable of uh, pieces to continue to hum. And, you know, Timmy is playing right now at probably the Wooden Award level favorite um, based on just how he's able to do everything and get everybody involved in all assets of the game and facets of the game, excuse me. And, you know, you look at Julian Strother and his start as well. We really haven't sung his praises that much on this show, but, you know, he's been very effective, particularly in the Kentucky game on both ends of the floor. And, you know, again, if you're Kentucky, there's a lot of concerns at play here in terms of their half-court offenses. You touched on, Eli. For me, I thought that they'd be getting more out of C.J. Frederick and Antonio Reeves, particularly after the way that those two guys shot the ball the first two games. Reeves looked like he's playing way too fast. I think he's 5 of 20 in the Michigan State and Gonzaga losses. He's 3 for 10 from the three-point range and just looks like he's playing way too quickly for some of these um, you know, one-two dribble pull-ups that he's trying to hit when guys are playing him off the line. And Frederick has also looked like he's a little bit sluggish in terms of playing in the moment against some of these juggernaut teams. And, you know, those were two pieces that Kentucky desperately needed in their half-court offense once teams started collapsing on Oscar Shibway. You know, Jacob Toppin looked good after battling foul trouble against Michigan State, a nice bounce back for him in this Gonzaga loss. But again, you talked about the 0 for 10 in the first half with the three-point range, the inability for creative sets to happen in John Calipari's offense. And, you know, that has to get better if Kentucky's going to compete with the other blue bloods and elite teams of college basketball this season. That's my kind of big takeaway from this. I think Gonzaga is going to be Gonzaga, but Kentucky has some real flaws here. And you expect them to come along here as you know, we Absolutely. saw last year in non-conference play. But for now, the half-court offense remains an issue. Scott, I know you want to touch on your Virginia Hoos, who you had in the future <laughs> for over the weekend. We already have that ACC regular season title futures bet from the preseason podcast, but they win the Continental Tire main event against Baylor and then knocking off Illinois on Sunday. 
Yeah, I mean, this is exactly the type of start we were looking for with Virginia in terms of competing for the ACC this year and maybe even now competing more on a national title picture as well. I mean, you know, you look at a, uh, an event like that where you have a Friday night tough matchup against a top five team in Baylor. You beat them. You have a quick turnaround to Sunday against a very talented Illinois team that has a high ceiling. And that's the type of event that replicates a Sweet 16 Elite Eight type of weekend. And for Virginia to not only win those games against two talented teams in Baylor and Illinois, but also the way that they imposed their pace of play. They played the style of basketball that Tony Bennett wants to play. I really liked what I saw out of this group quite a bit. I mean, they have talented pieces that are starting to really shoot the ball that we thought that they were capable of doing last year, like Armand Franklin. Reese Beekman gives them another dimension off the dribble, especially that late take on Terrence Shannon in the Illinois win. I mean, when you have a guy that can clear out and make plays the final few minutes of a game after you've defended against a kind of slow and steady offense throughout the game that can be tough to stop and you know Shedrick is playing really well hedging high ball screens and returning to be an effective rim protector and you know again everything we wanted out of this team from an individual growth standpoint how they've come together as a team has looked great so far and that's the type of weekend like I said that replicates the Sweet 16 Elite 8 matchup so if you're looking into some futures I know Rivers had Virginia at 35 to 1 last night that's been bet down to 30 now there might still be a little bit of value depending on how you view their season and what their seeding might be in the NCAA tournament. If you're looking for them to be a top one through four seed in that methodical Tony Bennett style of play, maybe reaching the uh, the second weekend and getting some uh, interesting matchups there, they could be someone to look into for some futures plays outside of the ACC bet we made in the first episode. I cashed at least. I think you had Virginia at least one of the matchups, whether it was Baylor or Illinois, but took them both games and underdogs in both games they opened as a favorite against Illinois and then they were about the other way so money came in on Illinois which I get they were a sharp play against UCLA in the first round of the Continental Tire main event as well but Virginia taking over really in the final three minutes of that game some hot takes before the game from one of the announcers who will be unnamed on the podcast saying that Terrence Shannon Jr. (laughs) should be in the Wooded Award conversation well six turnovers later and he's probably played his way out after the Sunday performance. But one name who I also had some hot takes about on over some text to you, Scott, was Ben Vanderplas late in that Illinois yes. game. But he played really well against Baylor at 14 points, spaced the floor, didn't shoot it efficiently against Illinois, 0 of 3 from deep, but got to the free throw line had 10 boards. So his ability to come off the bench took away minutes from Jaden Gardner. So the fact that Bennett has two guys that can plug and play Gardner for mid range and attacking the rim, that is, and Vanderplas to space the floor. If you need some three point shooting, because the floor spacing isn't there for Virginia in a given game, Vanderplas, the Ohio transfer can definitely provide that over to our last take of the big three, which I don't think I coined yet on today's episode, but The last of the big three topics to hit on, Scott, before we get into the Feast Week tournaments that we want to discuss, the Maryland Terrapins and Kevin Willard, who got very impressive weekend for them. Very, very impressive. Willard's last time on the big stage, TCU knocked off Seton Hall in the 2022 NCAA tournament, but the Terps win the Hall of Fame tip-off classic beating St. Louis and Miami by double digits. The Canes on Sunday afternoon in the the finale of that tournament, or at least the the title game, St. Louis, your Billikens covered in the late game <laughs> they against Providence. That, that, was, 
<laughs> very, very impressive final minutes, or at least it helped your wallet. But looking at this Maryland offense, averaged 1.32 points per possession over those two games. Dante Scott, very explosive, looked like he lost some weight. And to actually have a fluid offense to play in and a reliable coach in Kevin Willard, granted, we've seen some of these Seton Hall offenses when they don't have a true point guard that can attack the basket and and score. And Jameer Young, the jury is still out on whether he can handle ball pressure and he could definitely score in the half court. But defensively, I'm still not sold on Young coming over from Charlotte, a mid-major program. But the spacing is there for this team. The shooting from behind the arc, 41.8% from deep. It's probably going to see some regression, uh, negative regression that is over the course of the season, but you add Donald Carey from Georgetown, so you add more three-point shooting in in that regard, too. I really like what Maryland's offense has, again, with a legitimate coach. Julian Reese has taken a step up from his freshman season and can attack off the dribble and score inside and not just flail and turn the ball over when he's faced with some more physical contact down low. So Maryland has a lot of upside priced at around 20-1 to to win the Big Ten regular season title. Yeah, you just hit it on the head, Eli. I mean, the 20 to 1 number, I, I believe that's at Rivers, if I'm not mistaken, for Big Ten. I mean, none of these Big Ten teams have really separated themselves from the pack quite yet. Indiana, you know, a quality win at Xavier over the weekend. Michigan State's obviously put themselves on the map with the early win over Gonzaga and Villanova. But yeah, Maryland, with the way that they not only won, but just completely blew out St. Louis and Miami. There's definitely something to watch for here, and and Scott's development has really taken a leap, as you said, and we're going to learn a lot about this team rather quickly. The schedule here, they have Illinois on, on December 2nd in their opening Big Ten matchup. They play Wisconsin right after that. Those games bookended by Louisville and Tennessee and UCLA, so... That's a brutal five game stretch after Coppin State where we really see if this team is for real or not. And just skimming through some of the rest of the headlines from the weekend, Scott, before we dive into the holiday tournaments, Baylor hangs on after losing to Virginia in that first round matchup on Friday in Vegas. They cover the two and a half point spread against the Bruins. Shot making by Flagler and Cryer and George Kante, George, who struggled against UCLA, came up big when Baylor was trying to come back against Virginia in the second half, again in that Friday game. But Baylor's shot making was very impressive in the second half against the Bruins, especially in the final three to four minutes. Houston takes care of Oregon for the second straight season, covers the seven-point spread. Oregon, bunch of half-court turnovers, which we both expected. And Arsenault for uh, Houston, their freshman wing, shot it well and generated at least a few steals. So adding another ball hawk to Calvin Sampson's system when they already lost more from what was a, an elite eight team going back to last season. Very impressed with Houston defensively. And Jarence Walker continues to really shine, even though he dealt with some foul trouble against the Ducks, can space the floor, can generate transition opportunities. So Cougars seem like a legitimate national title threat. Michigan, this was my reference, Scott, in the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> Hunter Dickinson said on a podcast that will not be named that Michigan was going to beat Arizona State by 20. They then lose by 20-plus points, around a 30-point loss for the Michigan Wolverines. And then they follow that up with a four-point overtime win against Ohio. Granted, Ohio got lucky to get into overtime in the first place with that full-court heave. But 
man, Dickinson, what are you? I, I don't even want to use the stupid coach cliche, so I won't. I, I just, why would you go on a podcast and say that? It might seem obvious that Arizona State was going to be fired up because of that, but and, and their guards yeah. just dominated Michigan off the dribble like we saw Eastern Michigan do the week prior. Yeah, I mean, Michigan's had some really concerning outings so far. You know, they've only lost the one to Arizona State, but it was the way that they lost that. Again, sluggish at home against Eastern Michigan. They got beat by Imani Bates quite a bit and some of those other guards. Another sluggish game against Ohio. And, you know, again, those aren't two slouch teams, but... You want to see more out of a team that has, you know, one of the best centers in the country in Dickinson. They have talent around him with Jet Howard coming in. And again, for me, it's about that guard play. We've talked about it a lot before, but is Jalen Llewellyn going to be a Big Ten caliber guy that can get Dickinson the ball and defend on the other end? And so far, the shot making from the perimeter is not there for this Wolverines group. Again, the sluggish games uh, that they've had with three of them now. A little bit of cause for concern as we enter the Big Ten portion of the schedule here in early December. A couple other notes to hit on. College of Charleston knocks off Virginia Tech. The upset, that is. In the Charleston Classic finale, five and a half point dogs. Charleston was and plus 215 on the money line. And Indiana, another Big Ten team. We haven't given much credit to Illinois, by the way. I know I, I gave the announcer a little bit of... Shame for his Terrence Shannon Jr. comment, but the Illini will definitely be in the Big Ten mix. The favorite oh, to win the conference. they will be. Oh, yeah. I think Illinois definitely proved themselves as a legitimate Big Ten contender and even greater potentially this season with the ceiling that they have at all five spots. Again, I love Coleman Hawkins, and I think if he can stretch the floor for you at the five for Illinois, then you have some really dangerous lineups out there. Yeah, he had some big threes in the second half against Virginia to potentially give Illinois a shot to win that game down the stretch. The favorite to win the conference, Indiana, was pushed to the brink against Xavier. They did cover the closing line at some books. They were one and a half or two point favorites on the road against the Musketeers. But Mike Woodson's late game decision making, a little odd in terms of who to send to the free throw line, who to get on the floor to close out the game. We were discussing this off pod, as you would like to say. Kevin Willard, maybe the second best coach in this conference to Brad Underwood. I, I was starting to make the case for Willard. Well, Izzo, and then obviously. You sh- yeah. Izzo's got to get, you know, of course you got to go January, <laughs> February, Izzo. We're not going to call that reporter who loves to do that on Twitter. And then last but not least, Texas, my national title pick, or one of my national title bets from the offseason, priced around plus 2,500 early to mid last week before that Gonzaga blowout win, now around plus 1,200, plus 1,400. So the Longhorns are a clear-cut national title threat. But Scott, to kick off the second half of the podcast on Outside Shots, and of course it's sponsored to you by Shot Quality, and Shot Quality Bets is your home for smarter bets and smarter basketball betting models. The Shot Quality betting model makes projections based on expected scores, eliminated variability, and increasing Predictive accuracy. Ready to win more bets? Head over to shotqualitybets.com today. So starting off with the Maui Jim Maui Invitational. And if you're listening to this after the tournament gets underway, which you may be if it's early Tuesday morning and the first round matchups are already toast, the favorites to win the tournament, Arizona plus 250, Arkansas plus 250. Both of those teams should move on against Cincinnati and Louisville, respectively. I don't care if Nick Smith isn't playing in this tournament and considering Louisville doesn't really have a guard 
besides the one carryover into what Kenny Payne has in his first season with the Cardinals as 15 and a half point dogs on Monday. I don't give Louisville much of a shot in that game, but if you're listening afterwards and Louisville pulls off the upset, we apologize. The one thing I want to start things off for you, Scott, is the soft rim aspect, just in general, because there was a total on Monday that was steamed up San Diego State, Ohio State steamed up around six or seven points because of the perception of soft rims in the Maui Invitational. So tip things off for us with just that overall perception of the maybe shooting prowess leading to easy shot making in this holiday tournament. Well, I mean, we've seen it before with, you know, mega stars like Adam Morrison and Kemba Walker, who looks superhuman playing on Maui Invitational rims with some of the bounces that you're able to put in there. But, you know, coaches have talked about this before that have played the Maui Invitational. I had one described to me as the Maui Invitational rims being the second softest rims in all basketball besides the old Boston Garden. And, you know, it's just like one of those interesting quirks about this event that, you know, as you know, you said has kind of been baked into the lines in some cases. So, you know, maybe look for some of those over-unders, particularly if people are trying to take advantage of some inflated overs, as we could see. And, uh, you know, depending on the type of teams that are playing, especially ones that are prone to putting up a lot of perimeter shots, you know, let's see if a Creighton gets hot, for example, a team that can really put the ball through the net early in the season with guys like Baylor Shireman. Uh, You know, I think that mostly stay away from the over-unders on this, but there is a tendency for teams and individual players to get very hot on these rims very quickly. And things can also very shift in terms of, uh, you know, live bets and playing live ads as well. Like you can get a lot of uh, three-pointers to go in a row and make things very uh, dangerous very quickly. Digging into one team I want to get into if this matchup does take place, San Diego State, which is priced around plus 600 to win the Maui Invitational. They're taking on Ohio State in the first round of Monday night. We'll see if they pull off the win as a four, four and a half, maybe five point favorite if it gets steamed up that high. But if San Diego State does advance and they take on Arizona, which faces Cincinnati in the first round, I think I'm going to look towards San Diego State as an underdog. Hopefully it's around a possession, maybe closer to two if, if a good opener pops on Monday night, early Tuesday morning. But you think about Ohio State struggling with their respective turnover issues. Again, we'll see if that actually comes to fruition. But the Wildcats do as well. And we saw that going back to last season. So it's not just an early season sample size for me. Kirk Kreese, their starting point guard, over a 25% turnover rate. Henderson, the mid-major transfer to Bellis, the sophomore. And Pele Larson, another sophomore, all struggling with turnover issues, which go back to last season. And Brian Dutcher, which runs... Honestly, a very similar style at both ends of the floor to Virginia, but especially with that pack line defense, I think can shut down Tommy Lloyd's motion offense, the former Gonzaga assistant in his second season with the Wildcats, which revolve around, revolves around a lot of cutting action into that motion offensive scheme. And San Diego State's offense has also taken a big leap in terms of their backcourt with the addition of Darian Trammell from Seattle. I mentioned this on the last Outside Shots podcast with Trammell replacing Trey Pulliam, who graduated, and we saw it in that BYU game in the first week of the college basketball season where I don't think San Diego State comes back in the second half if they don't have another explosive backcourt piece to pair alongside Matt Bradley. So very interested, Scott, in a potential San Diego State matchup against Arizona if they are indeed a one or short two possession underdog on Tuesday. 
Yeah, and you have to like, in terms of the long-term outlook of this tournament, the draw that the Aztecs have received here. Creighton and Texas Tech is arguably the best first-round matchup of any of these games this week. The winner of them has to face the tournament favor in Arkansas. So for San Diego State to get a winnable matchup against a team, like you said, that gets a lot of turnover issues in Ohio State, to face an Arizona team that might have those same turnover issues in the second game, you have to like the draw for the Aztecs at plus 600 as opposed to maybe a a Creighton or a Texas Texas Tech that's plus 500 to 550 and you know like uh, you've talked about off pod with me Eli maybe you're not looking at some long-term plays for this tournament but in terms of some matchups I really like that one possession two possession type of spread for San Diego State if they face Arizona as well I really like that you know Matt Bradley and so many of these guys on the offensive end have really taken that next step up kind of like we've talked about with Creighton and my future outlook for them as well and you know, again, I think that there's a big upside for them in this tournament to make a statement. They're going to have a chip on their shoulders, maybe the team not being talked about among the top four favorites, even though they are a potential top 25 mainstay this season. And again, I like this Aztecs group a lot to at least cover against Arizona in the second matchup, depending on the spread. No doubt. And Ballo has impressed after replacing Coloco in his sophomore and his junior season, that is, after transferring from Gonzaga, coming over with Tommy Lloyd, but then you have Nathan Mensa, who seemingly has played in college basketball now for a decade <laughs> after dealing with what he dealt with in the COVID season or that took away a potential one or two seed for San Diego State back in 2020. So moving on to the second tournament that we're going to hit on in the third week of the college basketball season, but over to the battle for Atlantis. This starts on Wednesday, early morning afternoon, depending on where you're at in the country, in the United States. Tennessee's the favorite to win the tournament at plus 250. Kansas follows suit at plus 260. The Dayton Flyers, who got back Malachi Smith over the weekend, plus 400. Everybody's favorite team, just kidding. Wisconsin at plus 800. USC <laughs> plus 900. Butler at plus 1200. NC State plus 1800. And BYU at 20 to 1. No one wants to back the Cougars unless you want to burn money to win the battle for Atlantis. Scott, before we get into a particular matchup that we both want to dive into in terms of a total, when you look at the landscape of this tournament, what stands out? I don't think it's very top heavy. I I mean, we talk about, you know, Kansas and Tennessee, and they've been top 10 teams throughout this preseason in terms of projections. But, you know, outside of that Dayton-Wisconsin matchup with the winner looking to take Kansas in the second game, depending on their... Uh, obviously how they fare against NC State. I, I just don't see a lot of teams to really like here in terms of deep value or deep plays. And, you know, I think that Tennessee has a really a real chance to right the ship here with some of their sluggish start with the loss to Colorado and their perimeter shooting not really looking as it's expected to be. And, you know, again, I just think that this is a chance for, you know, t- Tennessee to kind of improve where they stood early season. I really like that Dayton-Wisconsin matchup as we're going to go more into and you know, again, I I don't see much resistance for Kansas and Tennessee outside of that Kansas second round matchup here. Yeah, really quickly with that, you harped on the balls. So just transitioning off of that, Tennessee potentially a 12, 13 point favorite. Let's say on a neutral against Butler in the battle for Atlantis. Butler's perimeter shooting got back on track in their last two games, granted against low major competition, but Thad Mata running that motion offense. And we saw it work to an extent at Penn State, even though their shooting throughout was inconsistent as well. Chuck Harris, though, and Lukosius, the sophomore, got back on track from three. Tennessee, I think, is due for some three-point 
regression defensively, allowing a 26.9% three-point shooting clip so far, while allowing plenty of open looks if you dig into some of the shot quality numbers. The one issue I have, though, against a defense that utilizes ball pressure, I don't really trust Chuck Harris and Jaden Taylor who struggle with their respective turnover issues off the dribble against Viscovi and Key, the Indiana State transfer. And Tennessee, unlike Penn State in that matchup last week, has the size to limit Manny Bates down low, who is an inconsistent post player when he isn't going up against six foot seven, six foot eight guys. Now, Butler, that is, may get back Aliyah Lee, the Akron transfer, who's still recovering from some sort of a a nose issue. But just a quick note on that game. May consider Butler at a big number, but I don't really trust their ball handling against still a, a top 10 defensive team. You're listening to the Lines.com Podcast Network. Looking for the latest player props and the best betting odds from the top U.S. sports books all in one place? Then join us right here every day this season for free picks and best bets from the sports betting experts you can trust. Check out the Lines.com NFL Megapod as Matt Brown, Steven Andrus, and Adam Candy break down every game for this weekend's football slate. Join the Coast to Coast podcast crew Mondays through Fridays as Nate Weitzer and Josh Lander bring you the best player props and game lines for Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. And tune in to Beat the Closing Line twice a week as Nicole Russo, Mo Nawara, and Eli Hershkovich dive into NFL opening lines, plus special guests from the sports betting world. So subscribe, rate, and review to the Lines Podcast Network, the source you can trust to make you a better sports better. Over to a matchup that we want to hit on, Scott, in particular in the first round of these games. Wisconsin and Dayton will likely be priced around a pick'em or the Flyers as a short favorite around a point. Malachi Smith, I mentioned they got him back, the point guard, over the weekend recovering from that injury, going back to the A-10 tournament last year. And that will definitely mitigate the issues that we saw against UNLV, their early season contest in Las Vegas. Now, Wisconsin isn't going to pressure a lot, so that'll also limit some potential Dayton turnovers. But both teams have really good rim protection. When you look at what Wisconsin has up front with Tyler Wall and Crowell, and on the flip side with Dayton, with Holmes and Kamara, and both teams want to run through, whether it's Dayton trying to attack the rim at a high rate or Wisconsin running through their bigs with Crowell and Wall. So I think we're going to get a low scoring game. And if you look at in particular with this Dayton front line, a top 60 defensive post-up efficiency per shot quality with both teams running at a slower tempo, especially in Wisconsin and a total that'll probably be set on the opener around 125, 126. I don't play a ton of totals, but might look for the under here, Scott. Yeah, I I think these two teams are pretty evenly matched, Eli, and I think it's going to be a defensive struggle when we deal with ballroom basketball. And, you know, we talked about the soft rims at Maui. The weird thing about this battle for Atlantis event is you get those weird overhead lights in a literal ballroom. You never know what the setup (laughs) is going to be rim wise. And, you know, we've seen some really wonky scores here in the past that, you know, really are outliers compared to the rest of the season. So, you know, for a team that likes to slow things down like a Dayton or Wisconsin, I think that's beneficial because you're not trying to get up and down with a typical offense that's scoring a lot of points or hitting a lot of shots. But, you know, for me, Wisconsin's got to continue to knock down three pointers at a high clip. If they have a chance in this one, they've struggled around the rim so far this season. A lot of their guards have taken it inside and not been able to finish over length. And that's certainly not going to get any easier against a rim protection agent like Duran Holmes. He can really swatch you and make things very difficult down there. So if Wisconsin is not hitting perimeter 
shots, then they could really be in trouble offensively. But, you know, again, Malachi Smith just returning as well. He's got to really get adjusted and kickstart that uh, Flyers offense. And again, one of the better first round matchups we have of any of these events this week and stylistically could be an ugly one in a play for the under. So you're looking at the under as well, just to, just to I am, confirm. yeah. I, I I agree with you there, depending on the line. Again, I think that these teams are really going to slow it down. There's a lot of components with their rim protection to me that stand out. And, you know, I think Holmes on the inside facing against that Wisconsin front line is mitigated a little bit. And then you also look at, you know, the, the perimeter shooting at this type of event. And I'm not sure Wisconsin it withstands at 38% like they usually do. So I'm looking for kind of a slugfest here, I think, you know, could very well come down to the final few possessions here. Is there anything worse? And maybe it's Sean Miller sweating on the sideline, sweating through that white button down shirt. But Greg Gard's facial expressions when the game gets tight. I mean, either way, he's a tough <laughs> watch because of his face in general, but he's a tough watch, especially when he gets angry down the stretch. I used to hate Fran McCaffrey. And he used to be my least favorite coach in the conference, but I think Greg Gard has easily replaced him for most hated and most hateable coach in college basketball. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hold off me? on that one. Yeah. I mean, I hate watching Wisconsin play. I don't have anything personally against Greg Gard. And, you know, again, it, it's, it's going to be a fascinating slug fest. I mean, both these teams are in the bottom of tempo on Ken Palm. They both have inside rim protection. They can both struggle to shoot from the perimeter at times. And, Again, I think I give maybe a slight edge to Wisconsin as of this moment, but I'd love to see the lines come out for this and, you know, kind of bet appropriately as we go from there. Yeah, I think coin flip game, it's going to open at most likely maybe Dayton is a short favorite and the Flyers could very well get bet up considering how the betting market has reacted to Wisconsin so far and their first three games. But I don't see a ton of value in that line unless Dayton is a a one possession underdog, which just isn't going to happen. So over to a couple more of, of the tournaments during feast week, Scott heading over to Thanksgiving day with the Phil Knight invitational. And then we'll get into the Phil Knight legacy, the second half of the PK 85 out in Oregon, Scott, you were mentioning how we should just revolve our coverage of this, the PK 85 around the Portland teams. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go to, to that extent. We, I don't think any of these Double-digit favorites, whether it's UNC or Gonzaga, is going to get upset early on. But starting off with the Phil Knight Invitational, UNC a plus-150 favorite. Michigan State, the second shortest odds to win the Phil Knight Invitational per Caesars at plus-400 after a hot start and giving Gonzaga a test on the aircraft carrier. We have both shared our opinions about that game. Oregon plus-550, Alabama plus-600. Those odds might change considering how Oregon was dominated fairly handily against the Cougars on Sunday night. UConn plus 800, Villanova plus 900, Iowa State 15 to 1, and Portland. If you want to back the the biggest odds to win this tournament, which we would not recommend, 125 to 1. What intrigues you? What sparks your interest when you look at some of these teams, Scott? I want to see UConn ceiling, uh, plain and simple. I think the Huskies have been a team we touched on a little bit in terms of 
maybe being undervalued nationally or in terms of the Big East race. And, you know, now they're finally starting to get fully healthy. You get Andre Jackson back in that rotation and his unique components of playmaking with the ball in his hands and his length on the defensive end of the floor. Only played in a few minutes in their most recent games, maybe not stuffing the stat sheet with the box score that you're looking for just reading things through. But if you watched any of those clips of what he's able to bring to the table and especially defensively, then you have to really like it if he's healthy, if you UConn is playing Oregon in that round one matchup here. And, you know, that bottom four of the bracket, when you have Alabama facing Michigan State in a round one matchup, I mean, those two teams in a first round matchup are probably better than all but one or two teams in the battle for Atlantis field. And the fact that we still have North Carolina, we've got an underrated UConn. You've got a sleeper, angry Villanova team that has already played a lot of tough competition early in this year. It isn't going to get phased by the moment of this event. This is definitely the preferred of the two Phil Knight tournaments for me for the week. And, you know, for me, I want to see how UConn looks finally fully healthy here. My only issue really quickly with the Huskies turnovers you mentioned how athletic Jackson is and how big of a disruptor he could be at that end Sonogo is obviously one of the best interior post presences across college basketball but we saw it last year when UConn faces ball pressure and granted Jackson and Sonogo are both in a, a season afterwards but I wonder against a Oregon doesn't run a ton of ball pressure but with that matchup zone that Dana Altman runs if they can disrupt this UConn backcourt that is in the middle tier of college basketball so far in terms of turnover percentage. Sonogo has limited his turnovers thus far, but Newton is hovering around a 20% turnover clip. Diara, who's transferred around college basketball, whether it's from Virginia Tech to Texas A&M, back to the East Coast in UConn. So I'll be interested to see if, if UConn can handle that matchup zone and and Fale Dante against Adama Sonogo is a tremendous opening round big man matchup down low. But a couple matchups that we want to hit on. Let's start off with the one that you touched on first. Alabama will likely be a short favorite against Michigan State. Now, Michigan State has allowed opponents to shoot just 26.5% from three thus far. But you think about regression coming, like I mentioned, for a team like Tennessee. And granted, it's a little bit of it in a different sense, but they've ranked in the bottom 100 of shot quality in terms of points per possession allowed on catch and shoot threes. And Alabama is going to generate a ton of those three-point looks in transition, whether it's from Marcus Sears, the Ohio transfer, one of their terrific freshmen, and Brandon Miller. You also have Burnett, the Texas Tech transfer. So running that four out, one in offense against a Michigan State defense that doesn't necessarily run a pack line, but they do pack you in. Bediaco is going to have a tougher matchup with Sissoko down low, but to me, it's going to boil down to whether Alabama is making perimeter shots. We saw it in their first matchup of the season against Longwood. The three-point shooting wasn't there, but if the perimeter offense is there for Alabama, even though they've struggled with some turnovers and maybe A.J. Hogard can generate ball pressure against Sears, I think Alabama can win this one pretty comfortably against a semi-overvalued and overrated Michigan State team to date. 
I'm worried about Alabama's ability to handle Michigan State's physicality, especially this early in the season when you touched on the turnover issues, Eli. Again, I think the Spartans will kind of bully you on the perimeter times. They'll body you up and they'll make refs make calls. And for an Alabama team that hasn't really faced a lot of length and athleticism on the perimeter yet, that's something I want to watch for right away. Michigan State, we know what they're capable of. They've already played three of the top teams in the country. You know, they're a veteran group for all intents and purposes. And I love Brandon Miller's upside. I think, again, this team goes as he goes in terms of his overall ceiling and what he makes of them late in the year. But, you know, in this matchup, he might have to trail a guy like Joey Hauser, face the physicality of Malik Hall inside. And, you know, this is going to be a big test for him individually. I think Sears with his turnover issues is another thing to touch on, as you kind of talked about with Hogard, with his ability to force some turnovers and play you a little more physically. And again, I think this Michigan State team still has a lot to prove regardless of the wins that they've already carried out over, um, you know, Villanova and um, excuse me, Kentucky, you know, this is a team that had title aspirations for this event. I think that this Alabama matchup is interesting depending on the line, but I I tend to go Michigan state in this one. Alabama has more talent. I think if you play this game in March that you might look at the crimson tide, but early on in the season, I know what I'm going to get from Michigan State. I know what I'm going to get from them defensively. And I wonder if Alabama matches that physicality and can hit shots and limit turnovers. Maybe I'm selling high on Michigan State a little too early to your point. And we'll see where this number opens up. Not a guaranteed play for me, but I thought it was. And you brought it up from the get-go when we touched on this tournament and the odds to win it. An interesting and arguably the best first-round matchup that we're going to see across any of these Feast Week tournaments. That game tipping off at 10.30 Eastern time on Thanksgiving night. And I know my girlfriend's currently in the apartment and I'm sure she's shivering at the thought of me having to watch that game, but we'll see. Over to another matchup or a potential matchup that we can get in the, in the second round of the Phil Knight Invitational, Scott. It's Villanova, if they do get by Iowa State, the Wildcats taking on North Carolina, who's one of the favorites to win the national title priced at around 10 to 1. If Villanova is able to advance and take on the Tar Heels, spread could be around maybe high two possession. And when I say that, I'm talking five, six, or could be low three possession underdogs as around plus seven, plus eight, maybe plus nine. I would love to get a, a Villanova plus nine. And considering how they've started off this season with those losses to Temple and at Michigan State, even though they covered at Sparty on Friday night with those late threes. We could get a three-possession spread here. And what you think about what Villanova wants to do, it's the antithesis of UNC to an extent. They want to slow you down. They want to not allow UNC to get out on the break and UNC to generate those quick drives to the rim, whether it's with Caleb Love or RJ Davis pull-ups and getting Baycott attacking the basket, but Villanova, when they're in their half-court offense, if they're able to slow down the tempo and not have to speed things up offensively, they're going to be able to play five out, and we've touched on it a lot on this podcast, how you can space out this UNC defense effectively because Baycott isn't the most agile defender at the five, and UNC, I mentioned three-point regression potentially. They rank bottom 70 across college basketball in opponents' open three-point rate. That coming from shot quality. So the question is, will Villanova's perimeter shooting actually make UNC pay if this matchup 
does happen. Villanova shooting 33.7% from deep so far. Caleb Daniels missed a lot of open looks, or at least makeable shots against Michigan State on Friday. Brandon Slater and Longino haven't given them much from three just yet. So if this matchup does happen and we do get Villanova around a seven to a nine point underdog against UNC, I know that's a pretty big margin, but I think catching around three possessions against UNC is a very intriguing bet on Friday slate. Yeah, definitely, especially when you consider that North Carolina really hasn't hit its stride yet. Uh, they failed to cover in a couple games early in the season. Their defense has definitely looked sluggish at times. And for a Villanova team that can space you out at all five and create some mismatches as long as someone like Dixon isn't in foul trouble, they could take advantage of slowing the game down and really making North Carolina work for it with Baycott on high ball screens. But, you know, for me with Villanova, I still look at their point guard play and you look at Carolina having arguably the best backcourt in college basketball and Villanova is still very much trying to figure things out at the point guard spot in terms of their production and their minutes and that's kind of the glaring weakness for me in this one Uh, you know like you said Eli I think this could be up to a two to three possession line when it comes out Villanova obviously has to get past Iowa State before we all you know rush to this sort of conclusion but yeah I, I think North Carolina with their disappointing efforts so far there leaves a lot to be desired here but this could be a showcase game for them to get out and run and take advantage of that really bad perimeter I'm not bad but inconsistent Villanova backcourt that hasn't shown its teeth yet and you know obviously they can space you out with Dixon at the five but they still have to defend Baycott with a smaller lineup on the other end of the floor as well and that's something that North Carolina could really take advantage of as well yeah we've touched on it a lot on this podcast Villanova is not going to hit its ceiling until Cam Whitmore comes back there's still no update on his status also Justin Moore veteran point guard or he'll take over that responsibility we would assume when he gets back in in conference play. So Wildcats offensively and defensively, because Moore is a pretty good on-ball defender, and obviously Whitmore raises this Villanova ceiling as a three-level score. So Wildcats will not reach potential Big East contender status until both of those guys are back in the fold. Over to the last tournament that we want to hit on in Feast Week, Scott, the Phil Knight Legacy Tournament, the second half of the PK-85, as I Keep referencing for the millionth time on outside shots. Programs, no odds to win this tournament, I should say, out just yet. But programs include Gonzaga, Duke, Purdue. I hate Purdue. Xavier, Florida, West Virginia, Oregon State, and Portland State. So why should our listeners look towards Portland State to win this uh, tournament, Scott? <laughs> Well, we don't have the numbers yet, so we can't advise our listeners to take something we don't even have numbers on it. But, you know, obviously, if you're not riding with Portland State, you're not really an avid listener and you don't believe in us. But no, all all kidding aside, you know, I think everyone's looking for the Duke against Gonzaga juggernaut finale. And this is the weaker of the two events, as we touched on. Again, there's some enticing second tier teams here. You know, Xavier obviously gave Indiana quite the battle. I loved Purdue and their comeback win over Marquette, how they went to a small ball lineup away from Edie. They got first more involved and they started to really blitz Marquette on both ends of the floor as they rallied for a nice home win there. But, you know, again, Marquette is still not really considered any sort of big time Big East contender. That's not the best win, but it's a good one. And, you know, West Virginia, you know, blew the brakes off of Pitt earlier this season. Florida 
Florida has already had a loss to Florida Atlantic and bounce back with that Florida State win. So there's just like a lot of unproven teams on the second tier compared to, you know, an Alabama versus Michigan State, to, you know, Villanova being in that. Like, it's just not even close. So, you know, for me, I'm I'm interested in Xavier. Uh, again, I think that that potential matchup for Duke in the second round is fascinating, particularly with that veteran front court and Nunji and Fremantle that can match up with some of those inexperienced Duke bigs and kind of how that matchup plays out. But, you know, I don't love the second tier of this tournament. I think you're looking at a Duke-Gonzaga collision course here and you know, what kind of value do you see? I know you're high on West Virginia, Eli. You've taken a future with Florida, although, you know, obviously you didn't expect the early loss to a Florida Atlantic team, which I think is undervalued uh, long term. But yeah, I, I don't I don't love this second tier one bit. Yeah, Florida will be a coin flip. And just to preface, because Scott decided to take a shot at my Gators. It's not taking a shot at me. I mean, you you follow them. So you you know what they're capable right. of. And just because a team loses early in the year doesn't mean that they're cooked by any means. But, you know, you have to take that into account entering a tournament like this. No doubt. And like I mentioned, and I will preface for the millionth time, along with the second half of my of the PK85 reference, is Gators got them at 120 to 1, so would not recommend them at the current number as low no, as definitely 65 not. to 1 in the market. Coin flip game against Xavier. I know you mentioned Duke. Xavier potentially is a second-round matchup. Duke-Florida could happen as well. I just don't think I'm going to have a part in the Florida-Xavier first-round matchup in terms of any sort of a bet. I think it, Xavier will open as a round of favorite. Maybe Florida closes as a short favorite. Maybe it closes at, at a round of pick em. I just don't think I'm going to be involved in that game. I think it's going to be priced pretty appropriately. But the game I will be betting, Scott, and the game that I cannot wait for, late Portland Thanksgiving State? night. <laughs> Portland State, exactly, <laughs> is getting my revenge against Matt Pater after losing to St. Peter's in the Sweet 16 and having... Four full days to prep, three plus days maybe, I'll give him a little credit, three plus days to prep for that game and still not playing Travion Williams, I'm pretty sure, I haven't looked at the box score in a while because it haunts me to this day, still splitting in my mind, I still see Travion Williams on the bench and Zach Eady getting destroyed in ball screens and I mentioned Armando Baycott struggling to defend the three-point line. Just watch Zach Eady trying to defend in space. West Virginia as a dog against Purdue. No, please don't hammer it. And you can fade me if you would like after a, a good start to the college basketball season. Just subscribe to the Discord channel to get my bets and Scott's bets in college basketball. Shameless plug. Bob Huggins, I think, has the bodies to throw at Zach Eady. Has the size to do it if the St. Louis transfer Jimmy Bell can stay out of foul trouble. And West Virginia's post-up defense has also performed at a, a top 110 efficiency per shot qualities number. So that means they limit the opposing bigs efficiency down low. And that in particular revolves around Zach Eady and his ability to dominate inside. And we've also seen Matt Painter's guard struggle against ball pressure. Now, I know they have a, a new starting backcourt this year. You also have the guy who's traveled around the country in David Jenkins, but press Virginia is back under Bob Huggins and they have the perfect guard to do it off the bench. We'll see if he gets into the starting lineup at some point, but Joe Toussaint, the Iowa transfer, we've seen Iowa transfers thrive, whether it's Jack Nungy, who you mentioned for in Xavier's front quarter, Toussaint off the bench here, the former Iowa guard, but he did it to Matt Painter in this Purdue backcourt when 
the Iowa Hawkeyes pressed, and we really saw this Iowa defense take it to another level last season for the first time under Fran McCaffrey. So if West Virginia's press can speed up a Purdue team that primarily wants to slow the game down and West Virginia wants to play at a slightly quicker tempo, we've seen it with Kedrian Johnson also contribute to press Virginia and their ability to pressure the ball and generate turnovers and speed opponents up. This game tipping off at 10 p.m. Eastern on Thanksgiving. I think West Virginia wins this game outright. I think if they face Gonzaga in the second round of the tournament, granted, that is if Portland State doesn't knock off the Zags, Scott, in their highly competitive first round matchup, West Virginia can cover a three, maybe even four possession line on the opener against the Zags because of how Gonzaga has fared against ball pressure so far, especially with their starting backcourt. We mentioned it, we harped on it, and we saw it in the Texas game on Wednesday when the Longhorns picked up that 19-point win as a two-and-a-half, three-point home favorite where Nolan Hickman is still struggling against ball pressure. He just didn't face it against Kentucky. Yeah, there's some similarities here with what we touched on with San Diego State and how their first two matchups potentially in the Maui Invitational are turnover prone. And we get the same sort of thing with West Virginia. You know, one of the things I look at here is Braden Smith, who has, you know, performed admirably so far for uh, Purdue. You know, he's got a 32.3% turnover rate. Ethan Morton's going to be a secondary handler. He's at 31% as a turnover rate. Those are the types of scary numbers that you look for with a team pressing against you. And, you know, there's more options for them to obviously get involved. Fletcher Lawyer will handle the ball some. They'll get it to Brandon Newman. Zach Eady has done a very nice job thus far of not turning the ball over when being doubled and getting the ball out to his shooters or other guys. And as I mentioned, I really liked that small ball look going away from Eady that caused a big comeback against Marquette. But there are some very concerning turnover uh, numbers here for Purdue, particularly with guys that you know are going to have to rely on that sort of thing. And, you know, if you think you're facing a tough team with a shock of smart type of defense, you know, you're looking at a press Virginia with with physicality, with the Huggins mentality that could give Purdue fits here. That's going to do it for our third episode of the Outside Shots podcast. Remember, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and leave us a five-star review and you'll have a chance to win an Amazon gift card. And Alliance.com has given away a $25 Amazon gift card in our daily college hoops pick'em contest for more details, head over to play.thelines.com. And Scott also tipped it off at the beginning of the podcast that the World Cup is going on. You can participate in the Lions contest to win more Amazon gift cards with World Cup action too. Scott, any last words if you want to throw some hatred Matt Painter's way? You haven't you haven't shared your feelings about Matt Painter. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds to do so before we wrap up the Feast Week edition of the Outside Shots podcast. Man, really putting me on the spot here on a holiday week. I like Matt Painter. (laughs) He was always good by me when I dealt with him as a reporter. I think he's had some fascinating teams over the years that have maybe under-delivered in the NCAA tournament in some capacities, but he also had some injury issues with the Robbie Hummel years. And I I hate the way that the minutes were distributed between Williams and Edie last year, as we've talked a lot off pod. But generally speaking, I think he's a good guy, a good coach. And, you know, don't I don't share the hatred that you do for Matt Painter. That's for sure. Would you get a 50 to one, Scott, on a team to win it all or a big number on Purdue? And maybe I'm misremembering because, again, I was tortured by the Boilermakers last year. You have some tough feelings, tough love. 
for yeah. a guy like Matt Pater that screws up I rotations. But here's the thing. You're the one that put a 50 to one on the Big Ten to begin with. The Big Ten never wins a national title. So that's got to be on you in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the blame. I'll, I'll take the fair share of the criticism. That's all I'm saying. Big Ten, prove it to me. There we go. I think people do ham on Thanksgiving. So if I give you turkey minus 175, ham plus 130, what are the odds? What what are you taking there? Even if those numbers don't really make sense. I don't love ham. That's a personal thing. And I don't love turkey either, but I'm going to pick turkey just as a traditionalist. But I'm a sides guy, tried and true. And if your table doesn't have mac and cheese on the table at Thanksgiving, don't (laughs) invite me to your house. If you're a fan of stuffing, don't want to hear it. Nobody eats stuffing for the other 364 days of the year. White Castle, you know, hey, turn our terrible burgers that you wouldn't drink under 10 years into (laughs) stuffing. Like, no, stuffing is bad. Okay, it's okay to realize that stuffing is a one week your food and that's what it is so you know a big sides guy like i said mac and cheese make sure it's at the table don't overdo the stuffing there are good stuffings but again i'm not looking to eat it outside of thanksgiving and yeah just you know gorge we're gonna have some great matchups uh on pacific time so some late tips if you're eastern time on thanksgiving day itself and yeah let's get some usa wins in the world cup here boys let's go (laughs) do you have your kit ready to go no, I'm, I'm not a kick. I, I can name like three players on the team, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, have a couple beers and shout USA at the screen when they play <laughs> Wales today or, you know, get some people over for that England matchup on Friday while I'm watching some college hoops as well. I mean, you got to get in the spirit of the World Cup. It's an incredible event. <laughs> All right. That'll do it for me. On the <laughs> Outside Shots podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys next month.